The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar twice, and Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne, delivering Australia-wide, princewinestore.com.au. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome everybody to episode 255 of Don't Shoot the Messenger and back from Bridge Congress on the Gold Coast we have (laughs) almost a winner. You're almost with a capital A. You are our champion Caroline Wilson regardless of bridge wins or no bridge wins. Tell you what January, February have been a while. Well the last six months have been a wild ride. Take but, us um, through the Bridge Congress. Well, my my wonderful team, captained by Sally Clark, Georgie Gould, Mary Beasley and myself, went up, played in the novice section. We, it's the second time we've played at Congress. The last time we played was pre-COVID. Could you just tell everybody what Congress is? We it, need to get the national is, scale of this. <clears throat> Picture the Gold Coast Convention Centre at Broadbeach. Oh, stick a knitting um, needle in my ear right now. Picture 2,000 people. Um, bridge champions from all over the world. I mean, there was, it's a big international congress. We played in the novice section, which, you know, I think there were 26 teams and you play three days and we won. We finished on top. I mean, we just had a, and Mary was so sick with the worst flu and stepped up. I was a bit jet lagged. As a team, we did really well. We finished on top. We were due to fly home Friday, but we had to, because we'd won, we were, told that, you know, we needed to play in the final. So we changed our flights. I think one of, one of us, our team captain Sal, was staying on anyway. The rest of us changed flights and we elected to stay on and play in the final against a wonderful team, half from the Gold Coast, half from Adelaide, who um, had finished second and they beat us in the final. I played, oh. I played probably my worst round of bridge. You play basically four sets of... Um, sort of rubbers, Corrie, and you play in, – in the teams event, you play 14, 14, 14, 14. So 28 – That's a lot of bridge. 56 games of bridge. You start at 10 a.m., you finish at 6 p.m. <gasps> with a break for lunch. And Thank God you, for the sushi train around the corner. <laughs> do, you, do, you get, um, do you get snippy with one another after oh, so pa- many games? Mary had every right to get snippy with me on um, Friday. And, look, you know, we all made, you know, look – but as as a pair, we made worse errors than we've made in years. But anyway, I don't do know whether that, it was do you exhaustion. Think the nerves, nerves got to you. Did I choke? Who knows, Cory? But anyway, we won a thousand dollars as a team. No, as a team. Oh, but that's pretty good. Oh, that's all right. That's a um, and facial. I think, I think the first prize is. Um, oh, you probably need a manicure after all that bridge. It's better than snap, a snap, facial. snapping those cards down. In fact, my nails were so bad. The last one manicure I had was in Madrid. I went and had a really quick one a really quick one, one morning before bridge. And I said, look, I'm sorry, you're going to have to paint my nails at lunchtime because I have to get to Congress. So that's how you are pretty rushed. But look, it was a great week. We were very happy. We did get home at about, I think I got to bed at 2am on Saturday morning after the flight and everything. And I was uh, I was amused to, when you told me that you actually had caught up with a football contact there at Brisbane. Or Gold Coast, I can't Gold remember. Coast. Gold I've got Coast. it with my friend Mark yes. Evans, who's but you the had CEO to cut it, of Gold Coast. You had to Coast. cut it short because you're in the final. <laughs> I did. and But he did tell me, had you stayed till Tuesday, you could have gone to um, Harry Styles, who's playing at Metricon, um, in fact, on t- the Tuesday night following the Congress. More of that 
in the amazing fact okay, later. Okay, okay, okay. Caro, well, well done and to Mary and to your two colleagues on the team. And I guess this means next year you are no longer a novice. Do you go up a grade? I'm still got an, I'm still um, not – you need 100 master points to – be not allowed to play a novice. And what are you? Well, after this, I'm probably just over 50. I don't oh, know. Oh, I can see you I creeping up into but, the next you division. You know, Georgie, who is a brilliant artist, as well as being a great bridge player, and Sal, who is a bridge instructor, she's been doing a bit of instructing. I mean, she's, they've gone from strength to strength too. So, um, yeah, anyway, oh, maybe, well, we'll, maybe we'll be in restricted next year. Well, we're, well we're all following you. So as you, points, as, you, as you earn more master points... Please share it with the potties. A couple of uh, little nice bits and pieces from the mailbag. Hi, Caro and Corrie. This is from Justin and Llewellyn Irwin. Mrs. Justin and I really enjoy your weekly escape from the daily grind, plus the recommendation of other podcasts. The rest is history. That was my recommendation a few weeks ago. And the brother podcast, The Rest is Politics, are excellent. Justin, can I just say I love The Rest is Politics. If anybody is... A, a, a political nut. Um, it's former Downing Street Director of Comms, Alistair Campbell, and Tory Cabinet Minister, Rory Stewart. It's just such a great podcast. I agree. I, I highly recommend as well. And Miss, Mr. Justin goes on to say, although we do have a regular come on shout out at the car stereo during some of your discussions and minor fact errors, for example, recently calling Gina Reinhart, Gina Hancock was a good one during the soccer sponsorship issue and was a favourite <laughs> along with Sumac Gate. Oh, yes. Sorry. Let's not talk about the war. Caro, we are travelling to our son's wedding in the UK in September and between our arrival and the wedding, we have a few days spare and thought we would train to Amsterdam for two or three days. As our Netherlands correspondent, could you please provide your five or six must-do tips for Amsterdam? We have become a travel service. Justin and Llewellyn, I'm going to follow up on this. I'm going to do more than that. I'll do top five culture, top five shopping, top five day trips and top five food experiences and may, might even do top five bike rides Gosh, or that's parks. very generous of you. That'll be on our show notes, I'm imagining, Carol. Is that how you're going to um, tell people? I will definitely do that and they'll be on the show notes by next week. Thanks, and we might Justin. We might run through the list next uh, next week as well. And Ali044 says... And cut, by the way, Gina Reinhart, Gina Hancock, uh, everybody knows yeah. what I know. Um, Come on, I, I thought that was a bit picky too. Ali O44 <laughs> said, just finished watching The Love Punch and whilst the movie was just as you described it, Corey, you neglected to say how awesome the soundtrack was. Fabulous music that made up for the poor storyline. Yes, Ali O, I agree. It was a very good soundtrack. So was the scenery. So were the outfits. The writing of the script was appalling. We've also heard from our old friend Eric Ellis who picked me up on a shocking cricket error a few years ago. He um, heard my comments about Brexit and how it's changed travel within Europe. He's got a fascinating story, Corrie. Look, it's a, it's a, um, and as he, he, he writes to us actually um, after listening to us driving between Spain and Portugal, he has an unbelievable story. So he's a Western District boy, but he's married to a British girl, Sarah, Sarah. And um, she's a daughter of a Brit, dimli, uh, Brit diplomat. And in fact, um, she was 11, Sarah, when the UK joined the EU. And very interesting to read about this in the new book, Bourneville, by Jonathan Coe, about Brexit and how it affected the um, the EU and, and obviously about all the Brits who were working in Brussels at the time. But anyway, they basically um, decided to – well, they became official residents of Spain before Brexit happened. It's a long story. Sarah, um, pretty disgusted with Britain, decided to remain in the EU 
They move to Portugal, easier, less bureaucratic than Spain. They fish their official residency, blah, blah, blah. They've brought a beautiful beach house in Comporta, south of Lisbon, by the way, fast becoming the EU's Byron or Noosa equivalent. Good travel tip there. Comporta. Remember that one? C-O-M-P-O-R-T-A. Phonetically, as you'd think. They pay tax in Portugal, blah, blah, blah. The quirky bit is to get citizenship in Portugal, they need to learn the language. Now, they've decided that um, um, Eric will be the one who has the better capacity for learning Portuguese, so he's taken on that task. Thus, I find myself in the bizarre situation that I, the non-EUer and non-Brit, who Brexit doesn't actually affect in terms of nationality, will be the likely enabler of a European citizen citizenship for my British wife, who is directly affected by the madness of Brescott. I kind of love the wackiness of all that. Go Cats. Lovely to hear from you, Eric. How amazing. I mean, it's just so lovely. Eric, we want you to keep in touch. Let us know how you're going with the Portuguese and how you're going with your, with your citizenship. Not every country... And, and the beach house. That sounds rather oh, lovely. No. Can we come and stay? Not every... Um, country allows this, but Portugal, and I know that Australia can be tricky, you can actually retain your other citizenships if you become a Portuguese citizen. Well, what happened, well, your husband has a dual citizenship because his parents were Irish, or your children Dual passport, not citizenship. Okay, sorry, sorry. Yeah, that's a bit different. Now, Corrie, um, I have been fascinated by this story, and you're about to run, launch your first ever Writers' Festival at Mm. Sorrento in in late April. Um, Louise Adler, famous publishing name, runs the is running the Adelaide Writers Festival. They've run into some political. They've run into a political quagmire. I feel very sorry they? for Louise. She was appointed at the end of twenty twenty one, and we all said hooray because well, they're her, calling for a resignation now. Well, some well, are. Well, uh, Maury Schwartz, the publisher of Black Ink, um, has called for her resignation, and. Um, I think unjustified. I think what's happened here is it's a case of you have to stand by your art and you have to stand by your artist, which is what Louise Adler is doing. Tell but us there about it, Corey. Are sensitivities there? So, uh, Caro, three Ukrainian writers have now withdrawn from the Adelaide Festival, the Writers Festival, which starts next week. Minter Ellison, who is one of their big sponsors, the big law firm, they have withdrawn their sponsorship. Why? Uh, because of the comments that have been made by two writers who are still appearing at this stage at the festival, Susan Ablawa and Mohammed El Kurd. And they have written um, in various uh, publications and so on. Um, Susan is a Palestinian-American writer who um, has, has written a book about a, a, a novel about a Palestinian family that's, that was forcibly removed from their village by the new, newly formed State of Israel in 1948. So there's a lot of sort of political overtones there. But recently, and more particularly, she's been uh, very critical of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Zelensky, as we know, is Jewish, um, but uh, Abulwa has um, has described him as a Nazi-promoting Zionist and has been very critical of his um, engagement with the war against Russia. El Kurd is a Palestinian poet whose debut collection of poetry narrates his experience of being dispossessed in uh, in that same sort of area of East Jerusalem. So there's they're, they're both seen on by some groups and on some levels as being anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist. Now, as Louise Adler, who's the director, points out, she is Jewish. Her family have a long and 
very, very sad history with with um, Holocaust um, Holocaust history, and her parents were Holocaust survivors, and uh, she makes the point that she she is judging the art and the ideas on their own without taking any political stand here, which probably is what you should do when you are a gallery director or a festival director. The, the art should stand for itself and then therefore you should stand by the art. And to its credit, the South Australian government has come out in full support of Louise Adler because, of course, through the festival organisation, they employ her. But the Premier has said he won't be attending. The Premier has said they won't, he won't be attending. Um, three Ukraine writers have pulled out uh, as out, out of protest. They are sympathetic to uh, Louise Adler, but they said they won't be appearing um, in a in a in a festival where these uh, two controversial writers are appearing. So Katerina uh, Bablinka, sorry, there were two, Katerina Bablinka and Olesha uh, Kromichuk um, are the Ukraine writers, and Maria Chmarkin was going to be the moderator. She has also pulled out. Now, there may still, as this week unfolds, we're recording this on Monday, there may still be some fallout. But I think um, I, I have enormous sympathy for Louise Adler, and I think when this happens two weeks before your festival, you know me, Cara, I'm a big believer as any, any publicity is good publicity so long as you manage the message. I do feel sorry for her and I hope that um, I hope that the fallout now is minimal. But also when you're planning a festival like this, sometimes, well, my guiding light, I don't know, nobody's taught me how to do this, but my guiding light is I, I imagine if I'm inviting these people into my home how do I feel about their views and how more particularly will my other guests feel about their views? So you have to be very mindful, I think, of the group around you as well. And if there are any sensitivities or difficulties, I think you probably have to have those conversations up front early and give people the option of bowing out of your festival, declining an invitation before it becomes public. So, for example, with the Sorrento Writers Festival, I've sent out probably about 130 or 140 invitations to writers, journalists, academics. Uh, we now have 109 who have said they're coming. There may be some natural attrition between now and a month's time when the festival takes place at the end of April. But that's a lot of people that I've invited and there are a lot of invitations there. And now I have to have a lot of discussions with everybody saying, okay, I'm putting you on this panel with these other people or you're going to be in an in-conversation with this particular moderator. Are you okay with that before it come, becomes public? And I just wonder how all of this unfolded without anybody seeing it. So you're but, – but, for example, you've got Marcia Langton, I think, appearing at the festival. Now, I, I can understand there are people who are pro-voice and anti-voice in terms of the current debate going on in this country. But I think when it comes to Russia and the Ukraine – and the objections that Maurice Schwartz and his not insignificant empire have against what they see as completely anti-Semitic and worse people appearing, that, that just, that seems to me to have been ill-judged. Yeah, look, I, I think, um, I think you're absolutely right, Caro. You, look, there, there is a bit of, there, 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 there is an interesting relationship between Louise Adler and Maury Schwartz, and that's up to the two of them to talk publicly about. It's not up to me. But um, Maury Schwartz, as the owner of Black Ink, a significant publishing house, mainly nonfiction, but also a bit in the fiction space as well, um, he, he is the owner of Schwartz Media and, as I said, Black Ink, the Saturday paper and the monthly. 
are all part of his uh, part of his baby, and for him to be so uh, adamant about this that he called for her resignation last week, and um, he said, "I call on Louise Adler, who invited the authors of these atrocities to Adelaide Writers Week, to disinvite them, and I call on her to resign." And Louise Adler replied by saying she would not dignify Maurice Schwartz's opinion with a response. So it has become quite personal. But look, I think you, I, th- I think, I think you probably, I think you're right with this one. I, I think the world, the Western world, and particularly last week when the United Nations actually um, demanded that Russia withdraw from the Ukraine, I think this is now seen as a as a global issue where we here in the West are pretty much sure of where we're sitting in that in the scheme of things. Yeah, there it's was not still so much 40 a controversy. Also, countries that voted against it didn't vote for it. By the way, that, well, yes. that that's right. But but Heaps does, more does did. this does this mean that people who come to Australia and express their views shouldn't be allowed to express their views? Louise Adler said. I think a, Nazi sympathisers cross a yes, line. Yes, I think I think you're right. Nazis and also calling um, and there's Zelensky a, we've got a, history. And a, a Nazi is is inappropriate as well. We, we've got a history of barring people. Well. All I can say, Corrie, is I look forward to yours unfolding and I look forward yeah, to no, them. I hope, hope I have no similar kinds of... Um, hopefully, only minus, hopefully only minor skirmishes. Now, our next topic, Corrie, um, came to my attention because I was um, one evening still struggling with a bit of jet lag on the Gold Coast. I um, picked up the February edition of Vanity Fair. It was a gracious load of trite... It was a greatest load of... What, what was on the cover? Oh, he's an actor. Just so, pe- just so people Channing know who Tatum. You, Channing one? Tatum. Um, not someone who's particularly I'm a big fan of. I mean, not someone I dislike or like, really. Their Hollywood articles now are basically so sycophantic and gushing, they're ridiculous. Well, that's the only way you can get an interview now with a Hollywood star well, or director. Well, don't do them then. The only uh, article in... There, there was a couple of interesting political articles, one about... Um, a Canadian story involving mafioso sort of activity. There was Elizabeth Taylor and her um, and how she stood up to the basically Hollywood and American community when AIDS broke out. Now I thought, oh, well, that that was the only story in the whole edition. I think it was there's so many advertorials now that interested me. Well, that was just an excerpt from a book, and it it was just it had nothing. It had nothing. What so, about the confidential, the one the, the up the back or the, the boring, questionnaire? Chris oh. questionnaire, new bloke doing it, or woman, not interesting. Um, a column, a couple of columns that were pretty much telling me the earth was round. Um, so my daughter Rose said you should go on to Graydon Carter's new website, which he started. Former, with, former editor of Vanity Fair for 20-odd years, I think. Yeah, famous um, self-admitted social climbing New Yorker who's done really well for himself. And he's... I mean, he had the first big interview with Ar- Army Hammer earlier this year, and it was a fascinating article. Now, he's offering something. And then we were talking to Anna from the op shop over the weekend. We were all at a beautiful wedding in the country, Miss Jane's territory, actually. And um, we, um, Anna said she used to sit down and allow herself a good two hours with World of Interiors. Now it's just syndicated drivel. So then I consulted my daughter, Clem. She's, she reckons that food magazines in many cases are getting better. She subscribes to Gourmet Traveller and says it's absolutely wonderful. But, you know, I, I love, as you know, um, country style. I reckon country style isn't as interesting or offering as much as it used to either. Where, I t- where do I you t- stand I, on this? I tell you what the problem is. Well, Caro, you know I'm a big magazine girl from way back. I remember in 1979 I bought my very first Tatler 
I was just 18. Tatler's one that stood the test of time, oh, and, I reckon. And Tina Brown was the then editor and she was the partner of a very good family friend of ours, um, Harold Evans, latest Sir Harold Evans. And, um, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I thought, how good is this? And all I wanted to do, as you know, for the next five years was to go to London and work on Tatler. And I didn't do that. I ended up getting married and covering footy and having, you know, a different kind of life to that. But I wish I had gone. And the heyday of magazines for me, I think, was the 1990s. And, of course, the advertising world and uh, glossy magazines had an extraordinary symbiotic relationship. And that's when all of those really big um, international brands like BMW and Cartier and um, um, Yves Saint Laurent with their perfume ads, everybody was pouring bucket loads of money into these magazines and they thrived. But I think what's happened is that um, with, for so many reasons, the the rise of the power of social media, I mean, you go to the hairdresser now and you look around the room and nine women out of 10 are scrolling through their Instagram account, Instagram feeds looking at fashion. So they're not picking up the magazine or the new idea anymore. The production costs, of course, are huge. We have a distracted audience. Audience, our attentions are going to Netflix, to stand, to yoga class, to work, because now work is 12 hours a day. And there's just not that same two hours that Anna from the Op Shop talked about. And of course, the whole advertising industry is in complete disruption mode, trying to work out what is the best place to put, in which to put our product. So if you're going to be charged $60,000 for a wraparound of a colour mag or a backpack, back cover or an inside spread, um, you're not going to spend that money. And um, just before he died in 1975, I think it was, my father gave a lecture at Melbourne University about the reading. He was, as people know, the editor of The Age at the time. And he gave it a, a, um, a lecture about in it, part of it was the reading, the reading, predicting reading patterns of the future. And I will never forget in this, uh, in this speech that he made, he talked about by the year 2000, there would be no such thing probably as the general newspaper. What people would start doing would be that they would become their own editors and they would start to pick and choose whatever their interests were. So it might be American politics, it might be the ponies, and it might be, um, you know, fashion. And so you would then go and buy particular products, magazines, that would talk specifically to those topics. Now, he had no idea of the internet, of course, but if effectively that's what we've become. I don't know about your newsfeed in the morning, but, you know, you might have the Washington Post and you might have CNN and you might have Herald Sun and they might come into, you, into your basket. And I think what's happened with magazines is they're trying to be too general. They're trying too hard to be all things to all people. Now, Vanity Fair, when it started or was rebirthed by Tina Brown in 1984, she focused very much on that Hollywood um, east, like East Coast, Manhattan, slick, even though there was a lot of Hollywood in it, but it was that kind of... And am- big international America- society yeah, stories yeah, too. Yeah, big international society. So it was all kind of aspirational. And she was very particular about she wouldn't go anywhere near a soap star unless they had a really interesting backstory, like they'd killed their lover or something. But she focused, she she demanded that she got the best, like Elizabeth Taylor on the cover, like Arnie Schwarzenegger on the cover, and she worked hard to get these big names. But she'd also put on Ronald and Nancy Reagan on the front cover too. So, and now I think it's just diluted. And you talk about Clem... Graydon Carter kept up the... 
very much the political side of it too. Oh, and did such politics. a and did such a great job. But you know, your daughter Clem talking about food magazines. That's so interesting because that I think is what's happened. So people like you and I and Clem who love food will latch on to gourmet or whatever magazine it is, and we love it and we support it. Country well, style, I've ditched, country I've styles ditched, are a bit um, watered down as well. Now it's a bit of too much. Like there's a bit of fashion and there's a bit of this. That. I well, loved just, it when they just did the lovely country homes. Look, orange looks beautiful, but. Every single um, edition seems to be back in orange. I'm like, are you sponsoring this? There are other parts of Australia. I mean, orange, great, but seriously, can we get to Victoria or Tasmania or Queensland or Western Australia or South Australia? I now subscribe. I've just taken on um, Condé Nast Traveller because, you know, I'm obsessed by, again, aspirational traveller. I don't travel as much as I never have, but I've always loved it. And I've given up Vanity Fair. It's just it's hopeless. Yeah, I think I think it's just trying to be too many things to too many people, and really, the uh, the tip is specialize, specialize at what you're good at, what your writing team and your editorial team are good at. That would be my advice. Not that anybody's asking for it. Wow! After that, we need a drink. Shall we have a fizzy champagne? Or what are we going to drink with Miles today on the cocktail cabinet? I think we're going to talk Spanish sherry today, Corey. We have Miles Thompson with us down the line from Prince Wine Store. Hello, Miles. Are you stacking boxes or doing something there in that South Melbourne shop of yours? Oh, I'm trying to get into work through all the roadwork, actually. <laughs> More of that later. Thank I, God I have... for iPhones, huh? Where would we all be? Knowing Corrie, she'll be talking about it in her grumpy segment this week. Miles, oh. I mentioned last week how much I loved the sherries I drank when I was in Madrid recently, and I won't try yeah. and pronounce Jerez, or there, there I've done it. Jerez. I'd love you to give us some recommendations and maybe we can pick up some at your wonderful Prince Wine store. I've got two. I've got one at the dry end. So La Goya, which is a very old bodega there. Um, it's their um, Manzanilla sherry, so that's a particular part of Jerez. Very light style fresh. So this is a really dry, fresh, like that lovely apple and sea spray thing going on, a little bit of that kind of... Uh, oyster shell, iodine, and that combined with that lovely sort of tree fruit sort of freshness that you get from these really lovely dry sherries, perfect with like cured meats or olives or sort of lighter fare, really fantastic stuff. I don't know whether you like dry sherries or sweet sherries or whether you were trying everything. I'd dry. Say, yeah, dry be saying dry. La Goya, is, is that L-A, new word, G-O, how do you spell that, G-O-Y-A? So L-A and yeah. then Goya, G-O-Y-A. So that's their, so Delgada Zuleta, I think, is the, is the bodega and the La Goya is the, this particular bottling. I'm just, I just found as a pre-lunch or pre-dinner aperitif, there is, it is just such the perfect drink. So savoury and salty and dry, and it just gets your mouth watering, kind of yeah, ready for food. Yes, it's it's awesome. And when it's really hot and it's nice and chilled, it's fantastic. And Quanta Costa Miles, uh, that is twenty nine dollars for for a half bottle for a, so a three seventy five mil. Sorry, I'm laughing, Miles. I'm going to have to send her off to accent <laughs> lessons. Really, I wasn't. I think I made it clear I wasn't trying. And take us to the sweet end, Miles. So the sweet end, um, I've got Val Despino and it's their yellow label PX. Um, it's about the same price too, which is incredible because I think it's a, it's a 500 or 750 ml bottle. So it's PX, which is to different grape. Yep. Um, and this is the sweet stuff. So it's aged through the barrels, it's oxidized and, you know, fortified and then left with all that residual sugar. So it's that lovely kind of black, unctuous, sweet, you know, raisins and dried citrus fruit and 
you know, lots of sweet spice and really fantastic. This is going to be one of the best value PXs around. It's it's really for thirty bucks. It's it's uh, it's a bit of a laugh because it's so good for the money. And when would you drink that, Miles? You could have it. I mean, end of the meal for sure. And you could have it. I mean, they're very sweet. So you know, I think a, a PX and like like a chocolate cake or a darker sort of dessert would be, you know, like a ginger cake or something would be really fantastic. But they're mm. quite sweet. You could do it with ice cream or, you know, like I always say, if you're kind of too full, it's the perfect dessert, you know, dessert and drink in one. Yeah, and then you do. If there's so much sugar inside you, you don't sleep till 4 a.m. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be going out after this one for sure. I, I do remember. I mean, oh, that'd be us. We've talked about our friend um, Annie in the past, and she said she worked out why her mum always drank sherry because it was so cheap. It was a cheap drink to buy, but middle of winter, if you're just having a bowl of soup on a Sunday night for dinner or um, or for lunch, one glass of sherry, a bowl of soup, and some warm crusty bread. I don't think oh, this is. This sounds like a Anita Bruckner novel, Carol. Sounds good to me. In the country, absolutely delicious. Miles, thank you very much for those two recommendations. Thanks, Miles. Thank you. That was a cocktail cabinet. Thank you, Miles Thompson. And don't forget, use the promo code M-E-S-S, that's short for messenger, at checkout or online for your 10% listener discount. Now, for the wonderful Red Energy awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar twice, maybe it's time you switch to Red it is time for BSF. Corey, I am so looking forward to this review. Kate Legg, Infidelity and Other Affairs. Well, Kate Legg is a very well-known Australian journalist. She's She had well, she was many years and she now is again Melbourne-based. And um, I think she went to your school, Caro, didn't she? She, she did. a matter of yours. She did. And um, I had been at the age, maybe one or two years, and Kate was hired as a graduate cadet and quickly rose to the top of her tree. She's won a Graham Perkin Journalist of the Year Award. She's won a lot of awards. Her work in particular at The Australian during her years there was outstanding, especially in the space of social welfare and community responsibility. And she has now, she's written a couple of novels, Caro, and she's written a couple of other nonfiction books, but she actually turns the spotlight in this book onto her own life with what I can only describe as enormous bravery and courage. When you become the story, it's it's the antithesis, isn't it, of what journalists are taught? Well, her husband, Greg Highwood, her former husband, Greg Highwood, who was editor-in-chief of The Age, among other things, when... I was at the age, um, had an affair and not only did he have an affair, but at at some point um, after the affair was discovered and it was with a a good friend of Kate's, they were families together at the same school and um, so Kate and they'd been on holidays together. He confessed that pretty much since they'd got married, he'd been playing around. Yeah. And she examines infidelity basically and it turns out that his father was a serial affair haver. And even her son, she found out during the course of the last few years, um, in receiving, I think, a 2 or 3 a.m. call from his partner, the son also had had been unfaithful to his partner. And she's so, written about this. Which is, so she has. So she's, so it's, it's, it's very cleverly constructed. And my tip to, to readers would be don't, enter this journey thinking it's going to be a salacious dates, names, chronological order, 
people throwing China at one another. Don't think it's going to be that sort of a book because what Kate does, first of all, she never names her husband. She never calls him by his name or her son. I don't think she calls the son the name either. But she she does journey through the um, through infidelity through the ages and she goes back to her husband's grandmother, husband's father. She delves into her own life. Her parents were happily married, but she looks at what made her the person that she is. Of course, what happens when you discover your husband's having an affair is, I think this is a very common response among women, particularly, I don't know whether men have the same thing, but women, of course, um, the very first instinct is actually not to throw China and blame the men and bash them up. Um, oh, sorry, that's a bad phrase, but you know what I mean. There's always a slap in a movie, isn't there, across the face. That's not real life. The first thing you actually do is you bash yourself up. And you sit in a room and howl for days, wondering what it was that you did that was so wrong. And of course, your self-esteem very quickly is in the gutter, sometimes doesn't ever get out of there. And this is exactly what Kate um, relays in her conversation with herself. That to me is more important and the most interesting part of this book doesn't than perhaps she, this happened or that happened. Doesn't she talk about the fact that he was more the romantic in the marriage and she wasn't, like she never remembered their anniversary? She admits that she probably, um, in terms of their sexual life, she lost interest in that. She blames herself on that part. And, and the other thing that people find so interesting, I think, the salacious part is that she and Greg remain good friends. And once he accepted she was writing the book, actually came up with the title. That's right. Yeah. And he did read it as well. So that was a condition of it. But uh, I, I actually, Caro, have, um, you know, I'm grateful that he's done that. I think this is a really important book and he's allowed Kate to delve into a whole lot of um, personal stuff about herself. She's the child of academics. She was very studious. As I said, in her early career at the age, she just, um, her career took off. She's highly talented, highly, highly intelligent. And she starts to wonder, was I a bit dull? As you say, was I non-romantic? Was I too focused? I was so determined to get myself and ha have two kids and get everybody through my career and my life. And she she wonders, you know, where did, where did we kind of go wrong? It is a terrific read. But as I said, don't start reading it thinking that you're going to, um, it's going to be all names and, and pack drills. Corrie, can I just recommend um, Kate Talks with Katrina Strickland, who's the editor of The Good Weekend. Good Weekend Talks is their podcast that accompanies the big feature article of the weekend. I rarely actually read the articles, but I listened to the podcast. It was incredible how open and genuine she was about this experience and, and the sort of, you know, motivation yes, behind the book. And Janie, the other thing too that I, I kind of love about it, because it's it's not, it's actually not, a, it sounds like a really heavy read. It absolutely is not because of course, in the hands of a gifted journalist, you know, she has light and shade in her discussion. But, um, but the, just, you know, she does, uh, after Greg and her part, and as Caro said, they do move on with aging parents and having, having grandchildren together. And also Kate does uh, repartner. So she does actually find, uh, you know, a new love or a new partner. So it's not all kind of dreadful reading, but I, um, I highly recommend this. And just as another plug for the Sorrento Writers Festival, Kate's going to join us for two or three sessions at the end of April. So if you don't get to see her in the next month when the book is first released, hang off till um, the end of, end of April and jump on sorrentowritersfestival.com.au next week when we release the tickets.
That sounds like a fascinating read. I remember we've all heard for over a year that Kate's going to be writing this book, and now it's out. I'm now sure it's, it's out. Going to be a literary new sensation. March title, and I think it should be a good uh, book club book as well. Now, Caro, you have a screen, Catherine called Birdie. This is a wonderful film. It's on H and it's not on HBO. It's on Prime Video. Prime Video. Get it right. Get it right. Um, it is the latest offering from Lena Dunham who everybody sort of loves and remembers for girls, I think was her first big sensation. It's a medieval romp, Corrie. It stars the most wonderful um, Bella Ramsey, who was in HBO's The Last of Us. That's why I'm reminded of um, HBO. And she's basically an insubordinate 14-year-old, daughter of a very, very frivolous titled Lord, who is brilliantly played by Andrew Scott. The, he was the um, the priest, the hot priest from Fleabag. And um, the daughter, and her mother is played by, um, she's bedridden because she's having trouble having another child. She's played by Billy Piper, who is also absolutely brilliant. She prefers hanging, rolling around in the mud, Birdie, than Catherine, who's called Birdie. She prefers hanging around in the mud with peasant boys and he's completely... Um, insubordinate really and basically her bad um, frivolous father who's lost the family fortune is trying to marry her off to a rich suitor and it's basically the story about how this unfolds it is just and it's a it's a brilliant if you if you took that back a hundred years or 200 years it could be a Jane Austen scenario couldn't it (laughs) yes except it's sort of modern the language is modern I mean they're basically trying to save the family fortune save the manor um I just the 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 musical score is absolutely brilliant, and this girl, this Bella Ramsey, we're going to be seeing a lot of her. She's an unusual sort of star. She's not conventionally beautiful, but you just fall in love with her by the end. When I say it's brilliant, it's just a great. You're home one night. You're looking for something to watch. Watch Catherine called Birdie. I loved it. Great, good tip. And uh, you're on a roll, so go on to food. Well, look, we've just we discussed before the podcast whether we'd done this recipe before. Miss Jane doesn't think we have. There will be somebody out there, no doubt, who will contact us. Well, we... it doesn't matter, Corrie, because everybody, if they are gardeners, and Miss Jane, I'm sure you're one of them. How are your zucchinis going at the moment? Nuts, Caro, nuts. Especially after watering for two hours on Saturday morning, and then it rained. <laughs> well, yeah, and I fell for that trap too. <laughs> weren't we happy about that? I know your daughter Checker and her husband Charlie and their Ballarat garden. Oh, always... their zucchinis have gone nuts. This is the most beautiful zucchini salad recipe. My daughter Clem made it over the weekend for a function kid was catering for. It went down an absolute treat, and it's very, very simple. Um, uh, we give the it, it's from the wonderful um, Julia Nishimura's cookbook, the first one, A Year of Simple Family Food. I think that was her first yeah, one. No, Julia with Ostro was the first one. Sorry, but this is the second one. The second right, one. Sorry. She gets a lot of airplay on it. Hi, Julia. I know she listens, so she gets a lot of airplay on it. Well, this is podcast. a great recipe. Marinate the zucchini with olive oil and a good pinch of salt. Um, she suggests halving four small zucchinis lengthwise and then cutting them into four centimetre pieces. Clem just sliced hers thickly. You, then you basically heat a large frying pan and or a barbecue grill and you fry them for five to seven minutes until they're tender and golden on all sides. If you're having a dinner party, do this the day before even or the morning of and then 
put them away, sit them aside and don't worry about them. Then you return them to the bowl, add marjoram or oregano. Anyone with a herb garden will have so much. I don't know about you, but my marjoram and my oh, oregano. My oregano has gone off too. Going nuts. Everything's going off. Now, especially with that rain, Jane, I noticed too. You basically pick the leaves from three sprigs of one of those. <clears throat> then you pour over vinegar, red wine vinegar, and the remaining and the rest of the olive oil that you haven't used in the frying process. You basically serve this on a bed of stracciatella, which... Stracciatella. Stracciatella. I always say stracciatella, but that's oh, obviously Oh, okay. Well, wrong. someone will correct us, please. Well, that's good because one of us will be right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you serve it on a bed of that and then you basically top with... It just with looks the, great in this picture. You top with a zucchini and then you scatter over roasted... Um, Toasted and roughly chopped walnuts, although Clem didn't bother with that. She says you doesn't need it, but I've got a whole lot of walnuts in my fridge too. Mint leaves and serve as a meal with crusty bread or as a side with whatever you want, chicken, salmon, I fill it, whatever other, baby lamb chops. It is the most beautiful recipe. It will be on our show notes. Yeah, and don't forget my favourite autumn recipe too, soup recipe, which is just to throw with chicken stock and all your seasoning just um, throw your zucchinis and broccoli and potato and leek. It's pretty good. Yum. Now, Corrie, um, that was BSF for Red Energy powered by Snowy Hydro. A leader in renewable energy isn't a time you called Red Energy on 131806. You're grumpy. Guess what I'm grumpy about? Something to do with your car or the road. Yeah, correct. <laughs> First one for 2023. Come on, we've only been... Well, it's only February. <laughs> I mean... It's only a matter of time. So driving up to Ballarat the other day, this happens to me a lot. I wonder whether it happens to other podsters or, in fact, um, either of you ladies here. When you are stuck on a freeway or a highway between behind somebody who's it's, – it's 100 or 110, whatever the speed limit is there, and the person is doing 80 – and you know that there's an overtaking lane coming up. So you're just sitting quietly. You're not going to risk life and death to cross the lines. And you're just going to wait for the overtaking lane. The overtaking lane arrives and all of a sudden the person who's doing 80 revs it up to 110. So you're trying to pass them and you realise, my God, it's like Thunderbirds uh, go. You're sitting on, a, I don't mean 165. That would be highly illegal. Corey, but... you're going to start, you're going to become a country bumpkin no, but... who comes to the big smoke. <laughs> this is in the country. Can... Come on, this is not a big smoke <laughs> thing. So, but Carol, it happens to me all the time. So with the country wedding that you and I attended on the weekend, which was so lovely, we shared the driving. So there I am driving along another country road and exactly the same thing happened. So... I'm sitting behind this chap who we're sitting on about 90 or something and the overtaking lane comes up. So I put my indicator to go right. He zooms right up. Is it a competitive thing? Is it because I'm a woman that the two people, the two men in these cars in both instances just can't bear to be overtaken in the overtaking lane by a woman? Funnily enough, Corrie, I don't think they would have known you were a woman, by the way. I think that's been, <laughs> it's a bit of a long bow. Well, they can't see. I have They're long not... hair. I wear lipstick. Yeah, oh, but... actually, you know what? They pro I don't think they could see from their doesn't car. Doesn't define you. We had a we had a, a, a bad we had a bit of a Mad Max experience ourselves driving home, and we were, as I said, in Miss Jane's part of the world. Can you believe we drove past the Dalesford Market, thought about calling in, but we're pretty tired and wanted to get home, and Miss Jane, as it turns out, was actually at the Dalesford Market. On Sunday, what, and selling I'll, your flowers that you no, need from other people's buying. gardens, <laughs> purchasing. She bought a marshmallow toaster. 
Mm. A new sprinkler, Hand handmade, hand wrought in the area. Oh, oh Jane, oh. you sound as you sound as smug as I did last week after Kmart. I actually said to Brendan, "Look, let's just we what with parking looked problematic. We should have gone in, but it instead, was so busy. We passed it as well. Didn't go in. Same reason as you. I tell you what, I Dale's said there will food. be some bargains there, and Pete just kept driving. But um, Jane, what about Dale's? We food? probably we, there's so many people, Carol. We wouldn't have seen Jane. Just I was there at seven a.m. Thanks to the person. Oh no, who well, woke you me definitely wouldn't have go. seen me. <laughs> no, well, I, I couldn't believe um, Dale. I mean, I know Dale's food is, and you know that whole sort of surrounding area is just so popular now. Boy, oh boy, Dalesford on Saturday. Yeah. People complain about Sorrento Main Street. Heavens to Betsy. Anyway, I said, no, I've always, this is a terrible admission, but I heard um, Kate Stevenson, who is a radio broadcaster who I'm a fan of, say years ago, Trentham is her favourite Victorian town. It's the most beautiful town. I thought, I've got to see Trentham while we're in the area. Brendan's played golf there, but I've never been there. You've so have been to Trentham? No, so we drove through Trentham. Oh, we're going to do it. You and I are doing a flop house with the cornballs there, we've decided. It is so but pretty. what was your point about the driving oh, and the Mad Max? Well, there was a, a person behind. Brendan pulled over at some point, and I was actually reading the newspaper, so I didn't know he's, to let this insane person passes who was on our coattails. It's probably me. He was no no no. He was dri- it was basically driving a it was a bit hillbilly looking this truck. In fact it, it had it was not a truck, it was a, like a had a it was sort of a truck, a van. Anyway Did it, it have did it have granny granny? It didn't, it didn't have a number plate. Did what it didn't have was a number plate. Didn't have a registration. So it passed us in a place where it shouldn't have passed us on double lines. And then the reason he needed to pass us was, or she, was because the car in front was going quite slowly. Well, then it did the same thing to the car in front and passed at a po- at a, almost at a turning point where he could not see who was coming. So we just went, oh, let's just stay right out of that one. That's mm. going to end badly. Anyway, Trentham is lovely and worth everything that um, people say. But um, I take on board your grumpy and I didn't really mean to call you a country bumpkin. <laughs> Now, Corrie, I'm going to kick off six quick questions for Red Energy. Which public statement most impressed you this week? The statement from Bruce Willis's family telling the world that he had been diagnosed with aphasia, which we knew in 2022, but the, his condition has progressed and now he has frontotemporal dementia, known as FTD. But I thought given the high profile and the fan base of Bruce Willis and given that he has a, a lovely extended family, which includes his former wife, Demi Moore, who also has released lovely compassionate statements, I thought the way they did it, Cara, was just really classy. Um, it just said, as a family, we wanted to take this opportunity to thank you all for the outpouring of love and compassion for Bruce over the past 10 months. Your generosity of spirit has been overwhelming and we are tremendously grateful for it. And that's a reminder that when things are dark and bleak and they're happening in our world, it's very easy for us to just become very internal and think of us. I love the fact that the Willis family thanked everybody else and wanted to make sure that everybody else was okay. But I don't know whether you read the statement. It was incredibly I sad. Did. And I just um, I just thought it was just whoever put it together, um, it was really uh, fantastic. Um Speaking of sad moments, what was your big take home from the weekend's memorial service to Olivia Newton-John? Oh, look, it was it was very classy. It was held in Melbourne at the Hamer Hall. Um, Did you go? No, you watched it. I watched I watched some of it on television, and I watched highlights later on on Sunday night. This this was a state funeral. It took a long time to organise to because of 
not family so much disagreeing, but getting family together and how that was going to happen. Um, is, can you think of an international star, an Australian international star, who has had a series of, you know, controversies and private life issues, who I don't think there was ever, have you ever read a negative story about Olivia Newton-John? Have you ever um, heard a negative story? No, the only thing was in the 80s and 90s that she wasn't a sex kitten, that she was, a, oh no, earlier than that, because then they did Greece and they tried to raise her up. No, before that, remember she was the country girl by the old... Um, Thanks for the Ohio. Ohio. Yeah. No, but I mean that. But that wasn't negative about her. I mean, I, I mean, I, I know her daughter Chloe has had issues. Um, she had the issue with her partner who disappeared. But you know, watching it yesterday, I thought, and you know, so many international stars did those films that attributes. You know, which always happens. People ranging from Sir, Sir Elton John. You know, <laughs> no show without punch. <laughs> And you know, um, people like Tina Arena, and I look, you name Sorry, it. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but Elton just uh, I think pops I think Mar- up. Mariah Carey was there. Look, um, Hugh Jackman, so many different people. I just don't think I've ever heard a negative story mm. about her. No, I haven't either. She, and I, I think I've told this story before that you know I, I met her a few times growing up because I was friends with her nieces, and I remember being at Peanuts, where, which Brian Goldsmith ran, the Peanuts Emporium that ended up having you know other places like Redhead and the Underground, and I was with Fiona Goldsmith, Olivia's niece, and Fiona is, is a beautiful girl. And we were in the same class at school together. And we were sitting talking to Olivia, who was pretty famous even then. But I, we were, I think we were in about year nine or ten. And I was bagging um, Fiona's outfit. I said, oh, that you're wearing a daggy dress or something. Some mean girl, joking mean girl sort of comment. And Olivia looked at That's me. That's not and, like you, Caro. Olivia looked at me and said, sorry, what did you say about Flea? They called her Flea. What did you say about Flea's... Um, uh, jeans or something. I said, oh, you know, they're pretty daggy. They should be this or this should be that. She goes, she picked up the material of my dress and went, hmm, interesting. <laughs> was it, was Olivia it one of your, slapped me down. Was it one of your indigo peasant dresses? Slapped me down, probably. And put, let me say, you know, in terms of attractive stakes, not that it matters, Fiona had it all over me. It was just the biggest put down ever. And she did it with a smile on her face. Anyway, I've always remembered well, that. Well, you see, you've got something bad to say about her. No, I, it was good. Good on her for sticking up for her niece and giving me the oh, slap down. Look, Vale, Olivia, she just died way, way, way too young. I know. And what a what a brilliant talent. Corrie, what are your thoughts on going grey? Well, there's been a lot of grey happening, Cara. This was this was triggered by Lisa Laflamme, who is a um, long-time Canadian uh, news anchor on Canadian TV. And after 35 years, she was given the chop. And we understand it's because during COVID, she didn't have, she wasn't dyeing her hair. And um, she, I think she's in her late 50s perhaps, and uh, so she came out of lockdown and COVID and thought, well, I'm just going to keep my hair colour. What do you know? Got the sack. As Hillary Clinton once said, pay attention to your hair because everyone else will. So I just thought, well, that's kind of interesting and put it on Instagram and had a few comments about whether women should keep their hair grey or not. And I think it is an individual discussion that. But um, I... I've noticed now, and probably because I, my telephone has heard me say grey hair, mm-hmm. that I'm now receiving on every every time I'm on Instagram, I seem to get ads for how to colour your hair or newspaper articles saying going grey is cool. Um, you know, <laughs> whatever, I don't know, whatever headline. But do you have any thoughts on going grey? Well, there's a big article in the um, 
Australian, um, the Weekend Australian magazine, I think, on the weekend just passed, the last weekend of February, that basically says how um, older women are now the new role models and they've got people like Andy McDowell or they've got so many I'm just showing you, I'm women. showing to the um, microphone, that's a photo of Lisa. So if you want to look at, uh, look her up, it's Lisa and you spell her surname L-A-F-L-A-M-M-E. What a hottie. She's gorgeous. It's easier, Who I think. Who cares for, about the hair colour? I think it's easier for blonde people to decide to go grey than dark-haired people to decide to go grey. My personal thoughts, I won't be doing it for a while. But I did, in this article in The Australian, read this list of incredibly beautiful women who are now... I mean, there was some gorgeous woman who was on the cover of um, the latest Sports Illustrated swimwear edition, and she looked Miss Jane's looking at me knowingly. There were so many wonderful, gorgeous older women. And they're basically saying that these are the new role models because they have basically got all the money and mm. they're living longer and they're having more successful careers. I think And that, they're not spending two hundred and fifty dollars every six weeks at the hairdresser. Exactly six weeks, that's generous. At the um Paris fashion show um recently, I think the closing catwalk performance was Charlotte Rampling walking down the catwalk with this incredible black outfit, looking absolutely stunning. I mean, she was a closing performer. And With grey hair. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. How grey are you? Oh, don't. Heaven knows. <laughs> I've never waited long enough to find out. Well, you, but no you can idea. tell by your regrowth. If your regrowth is fast and furious, then that suggests that you are pretty grey. But yeah. I don't ever see any regrowth on you. Maybe you're just well, a natural brunette. That's the idea. No, I'm certainly not. A, <laughs> I was a natural brunette for many years, Corrie. Um, um, anyway, Cara, that's what, my thoughts on going grey. It won't be happening here. What musical event are you looking forward to? Look, I'm looking forward to a lot of musical events, but one in particular is the Renee Geyer tribute performance. It's at the National Theatre in St Kilda. I think it's coming up... Um, April 4. April 4, thank you, because I've sent you the flyer, didn't I? Because I mm. want you to come and join me. My great friend and your friend, Deborah Conway, is going to be one of the performers there. Ross Wilson, Paul Kelly, Russell Morris, Kevin Borich. Pretty impressive. Oh, Tickets aren't that expensive and it's... Um, Kevin Borich. I, I don't know about you. I mean, I know everyone has a Renee Geyer story, not all of them generous, but she was just a brilliant performer. Mm, and as, they, as one of her albums called herself, a difficult woman. Well, I, People I, don't like difficult women. They cop difficult men, but not difficult women. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? It's true. It is true. Anyway. Uh, I'm and looking... I think that will be good. But it's, there are so many great songs that Renee Geyer sang. And um, I think that will be a great night. And hopefully I can come. I just have to check my diary. I just love Renee Geyer. I think he is so talented. Now, Corrie, what are your thoughts? I'm interested in this. Oh, are you? What are your thoughts on the transseasonal coat? We're really dealing with weighty issues now. Well, look, No, I think it's a very important issue. It is issue. very important. You know, it's it's... It's the difference, Cara. It's a $500 or $400 difference here. I'm about to tell you, don't bother getting one. Oh, could not disagree more. Okay, Go on. Let's you give me your side. Okay. There are, because of obvious reasons, there are a lot of fashion articles at the moment relating to buy yourself a trench, buy yourself a light jacket, no lining, so it's kind of loose and looks a bit deconstructed. But get yourself a light jacket, get yourself uh, – now, I don't mind a trench coat. I really love – actually love a trench coat. But for the fashion industry to be trying to sell us this whole transseasonal idea, like, oh, gosh, you need a transseasonal coat because the, the 
seven or the three or the one that you have in your cupboard is not going to be appropriate enough. It's just rubbish, people. Don't listen to them. They're just trying to get you to go and spend another $500 on a coat you don't need. They're pretending this whole transseasonal thing is trying to get us in, lulling us into this idea of, oh, there'll be three coolish months before winter really comes. Well, we are in Australia. We are in Melbourne. It's not like we go from autumn to snow. It's not like we're going from 18 degrees to minus 10 if you live in Buffalo, New York. It's really, we don't need transseasonal, Carol. We don't. You either wear your winter coat and have a very light layer, like a shirt underneath, so you don't overheat, or you just layer up, as you were talking about last week with in Amsterdam. You just have four layers but on. But what about if you live in Sydney? Sydney, well, you need I a transseasonal coat. But I don't live in Sydney. Okay, well, I live in Melbourne like you. And la- remember I have my three big coats in my cupboard. I can't afford another one and I don't need it and there's no room. Remember my transseasonal Lee Matthews trench that I bought last year yeah, at a, lovely, an outlet shop. You didn't need to buy that. I wore it all September. I wore it to every single footy final. It was thick polished cotton trench, warmer than your average trench. I'm still wearing it. it I'm, not, been, I'm not dissing the coat. I'm just saying it's perfect surely, in summer surely on a cold there would night. have been other coats that you could have worn in your cupboard. Nothing that could have. And I've just bought another one. I've just oh. bought a Gabardine transseasonal coat. Is this the one from overseas? El Corte Inglés, <laughs> half price. As I mean, the, the Lee Matthews one, I saw online. I for, thought I might be on a sensitive topic there. I saw the Lee Matthews. I mean, how good? It was $1,400 and it was so beautiful. I tried it on. I went, oh, no, that's ridiculous. When I found it again with my daughter Clementine, who took me to this outlet place in Fitzroy, $340. Now, a, I think you bought that just because you had to because of the bargain element. But I, no. It, it, I know you, a lot of women who do that. You've complimented me on it. it is, oh, Carol, I love your coat. It, it's more than transseasonal. You've got, that lovely, you've got a lovely um, pink coat. You've got a lovely that, that's blue the coat. One. The blue, oh, the blue coat's now about five years old. In I'm fact, sick you've, of that got now. About, you've got a lot of coats. No, but after about three years, you maybe some of them you offload. You just get sick of them. All I'm saying, Potties, is don't be fooled by all of this. There's a sudden resurgence or they're trying to say that we need this transseasonal thing and you should go and buy a trench coat. You'll wear it till June and then you'll pick it up again in September. Mm. It's actually nine months of the year coat. Mm. <laughs> it's a multi-seasonal coat. Big to differ. Um, okay, so on to your amazing fact, which won't be about coats. I no, guess. it's uh, you, you're familiar with the work of Harry Styles. Oh, yes, I am. I, <laughs> I first saw Harry, I mean, Clem always, because Clem was a, a bit of a One Direction a boy, fan. Yeah, he was there, in I think, boy band. I mean, there's a great history of boy band um, stars, you know, breaking out as an individual and becoming mega stars, like Robbie Williams, obviously, is the archetypal. Yeah, and, and George Michael. George. Oh, well, oh he, Wham. That I mean, was only no, a, it wasn't a, a boy two, band, but yeah, it was a Wham two man was band. Boyish. Two man band. Uh, uh, Justin Timberlake, obviously, is another one. But Harry Styles, boy, oh boy, he's in Australia at the moment. He went to Chibo Cafe in Collingwood yesterday, a fabulous sort of quirky place that has great coffee and has all these wonderful Japanese homewares and blah, blah, blah. He's been performing in Melbourne. My daughter, Clem, was just. So no, he doesn't. He's not quite as a fanatic as she was a few years ago. But he normally goes to Chibo. So he was why, 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 why didn't I go on Sunday morning? Anyway, um, he's playing across Australia. He has. He's also become a big movie star. He was in the film Don't Worry, Darling, quite a controversial film, directed by Olivia Wilde. Controversial because apparently Olivia Wilde started having an affair with Harry Styles while directing this film. She also stars in the film. 
she apparently fell out with Florence Pugh, the wonderful Florence Pugh, you know, Amy from Little Women, who we just love, little drummer girl, and um, they fell out. Now, was Harry also seeing Florence early on? I don't know. I think Florence has her own partner. I don't know. Anyway, the film was beset by problems. I think and someone slapped someone in the face, someone pulled out of the film. Harry's okay in it. Florence Pugh is great. It's not that great a film. Anyway, I think now Harry and Olivia have broken up. Harry, I've read before that he might um, be bisexual. Not sure. There's all sorts of stories about him. Point, main, main point being, he is a massive star. He has now become a very successful actor and he is a very, very successful singer. Talking to Mark Evans, who runs the Gold Coast Suns and manages, of course, Metricon Stadium, where Harry is performing this week, he said this is he has never... You know, he's normally used to putting on football matches and he's had, you know, Queen play it, uh, the the new version of Queen play, et cetera, et cetera. He said there will be, obviously it's sold out, there will be 2,000 young women, very young women, sort of aged between about 12 and 15, arrive at Metricon Stadium on the Gold Coast before lunchtime or or maybe before 2 o'clock on the night of... The, the eve of the day of the concert. Their parents will bring them. He gave me the figures. They will spend, on average, about 40 or $50 on merchandise. They won't buy any food or water. So it's going to be interesting on a very hot day how they're going to be by the time the concert starts. The minute, the minute, the second Harry's done his final encore, he has to be escorted away from the stadium by this massive security contingent because if he doesn't get out straight away, he'll be nailed, attacked, whatever, mobbed. Can't he just do what the Stones did and fly in and out in a helicopter? And until he leaves, they won't leave. The the fans won't leave. So that's why they've got to say Harry has left the building, you know, in the old mm. Elvis, thank you and good night. But he said the other, the only other way, if they don't get him out in the seconds after he's finished his, they have to lock him in a security tight security holding and tell everyone that he's left. He, he said the logistics around this performance he has never seen the likes of. Just extraordinary. That's terrifying. Extra- well, I mean, he's, he's so big. I mean, he's a great performer, just watching him on YouTube. Yeah, well, what I saw performer. him at the um, London Olympics. He performed, I want to say the opening ceremony, but it could have been the closing. I can't remember, but he was pretty impressive. I mean, he was in One Direction then. They were, they they were pretty good, and they were always. Not, is it Niall Horan, Jane? She's, he's just put a single out. Like it's not like the rest of them have all fallen in a heap and done nothing either. So one of the more successful. It's funny, I would never have taken Jane to be a One Direction kind of girl. I You're worked deferred... on commercial radio for ten years, Corey. I played that song a lot. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I could. Um, Clem will I be listening to this going on, Mum. You've, you've, you know, you've. Thank God so you many... come up in the world and you know and don't shoot the messenger. So many things you haven't talked about, but um, on in terms of don't worry, darling, I wouldn't bother. Watched it on the plane. Okay, yep. Good always tip. bad when a major person in the cast has an affair with another major person in the cast. I'm not saying Olivia Wilde was sort of bad in it, but um. Yeah. Anyway, I don't think they're together. Another another really bad Vanity Fair article. By well, the way. this has been a very uh, <laughs> a very diverse. Don't shoot the messenger. A lot of popular culture this week, but that was fun, and I hope you've enjoyed it. We certainly have, and I hope our show sponsors, Red Energy, have as well. Red Energy awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar, not once but twice. 
And of course, Miles and the gang at Prince Wine Store, thank you very much for also supporting our podcast. Caro, that was a great episode. Look forward to seeing you next week. What do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store.